0: Hey there, Georgia football fans. My name is Scott Duvall, and you are listening to episode 12 of the Waitin' Since Last Saturday podcast. In a second, I'll be joined by my two co-hosts, Will Leach and Tony Waller, as we give our analysis on the 48-6 Georgia victory over the Southern University Jaguars, which took place on Saturday at Sanford Stadium. But first, most everyone is certainly aware of Southern University's Devin Gales, who sustained a spinal injury during the game. Will has an update on Devin's status in the podcast, but I wanted to give out a couple bits of information for our listeners in case you wanted to reach out to Devin. First, cards and well wishes can be sent to Southern University Athletics, care of Devin Gales, P.O. Box 9942, Baton Rouge, Louisiana 70813. Secondly, UGA student Chelsea McBride has set up a GoFundMe page where you can help support Devin and his family. All you need to do is go to the site at GoFundMe.com And in the search box, type in Devin Gales. Coach Mark Rick was quoted saying, we're trying to cover him up with as much love as we can and let him know that we care and let him know that we're here to help. I think it's safe to say that Coach Rick speaks for all of us in the Bulldog Nation. Get well, Devin. And with that, here's Will.
1: All right, everyone, I have to confess from the get-go that I watched only the first half of this week's game. I was in Champaign, Illinois, watching a dominant, all-encompassing, completely convincing Illinois 27-25 victory over the Middle Tennessee State Blue Raiders in Champaign, Illinois. So I watched the first half, and I have to say, the first half, I didn't think this was one of Georgia's best games. It appears the second half went a little smoother.
2: That's right. I don't know what our deal was in the first half. I mean, the game was never in doubt. I mean it was we played fairly well. We we got handled on the offensive line in a way I didn't think we would. Um, and that showed up in the rushing game stats. Fortunately, Grayson Lambert was his ho hum efficient self, nine of ten, and that that's what carried us in the first half.
0: Yeah, the only way I knew the halftime score was the fact that the Southern band spelled it out at halftime, which was pretty amazing the fact that they could coordinate that with such short notice.
1: I was going to ask about how the band was. What what they do uh, since I wasn't there. It was actually
2: it was really cool they did. Uh, they came out and did a short like march in number and then they spelled out the score and then they actually dropped uh, they all dropped their instruments and did the whip and nay nay. <laughs> uh, while, while essentially chanting, I guess, and they had the drumline doing the whip, uh, doing the, the drum beat for the song, and then they did a couple other things. There was a little dance number, and it was it was it was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was really well done, especially considering apparently this was like a one time show they put together this week for the game.
1: That is amazing to me. the The, the fact that they could do the score is pretty wild. That's uh, that, I think you have to know each other pretty well to be able to pull that together so quickly. When you look at the game itself, any takeaways? Lambert appeared to look good, particularly I read a Seth Emerson story this morning about how he and, and Malcolm Mitchell are starting to develop a little bit of chemistry. Was there anything takeaway take away from that?
2: Well, we went long one time. It was called back lining up, I think, uh, maybe Kugelanow, I could have been Kugelanow. It was Colton Houston lined up four or five inches in the backfield, so they threw a flag on us, but it was a it was a straight-up bomb. I mean, it was it was legitimate, 55 yards in the air, over-the-shoulder, NFL-style throw, and it was gorgeous. Just expertly done, no doubt whatsoever what the play was from the second the ball was hiked. It was beautiful.
0: And the good thing to see was that that throw went to Malcolm Mitchell. And, you know, I, I root for the guy just for everything he's been through. And then, what, three plays later, he gets a touchdown regardless. And it was a great catch on the next touchdown he caught.
2: Mitchell had five catches for 96 yards, and it was a really efficient game, again, for Lambert. I mean, 9 of 10, 146 yards, and a TD. And of course, you know, he no, no ice cream this week. He did take a sack, which is the first time he's been sacked this season. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I think so. That's a testament. I mean, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i not exactly sure if we were trying some stuff offensively that we kept checking out of, and that's why we looked so out of sorts or what. But, you know, it was a really – it was a ho-hum – you know, 20-6 to six lead, and never, I mean, 17-zip before anything happened. So it's nothing to worry about in my mind.
1: When they score, they, they kind of move the ball a little bit. There's a little stretch there in the second quarter where it looked like they moved a little bit. But, you know, we've talked in the past about how, uh, you know, there's always one drive that you want them to screw up on just so they have something to hammer home all week. Uh, was, that, was the defense extraordinary? Or was it, were they, were, did they just overmatch everyone so much that we really couldn't learn anything about them at all?
2: From where I was sitting, it was exactly the same thing. I I don't know whether we switched into a, a little different defensive look that left the seam open. Uh, but it was exactly the same thing we saw against U. L. Monroe and Vanderbilt. It was a short pass, basically over the middle, where you'd use play action to get Gaines or Floyd to bite, and the other one or the safety was supposed to step up and cover either the slot or the the tight end. And which didn't do it. It was you know, it really was a bam, bam, bam right down the field kind of drive, maybe I don't know. It was really one of those things where I'm just trying to look through here you and know, look at the, the drives. I don't know. It it looked like one of those things where we talked about it, we always seem to have that one drive where where we we seem to just give up a play we I mean it's just a threat of plays we shouldn't and it looked the same. Uh, the problem with that is that we're you know, we're coming up against a team that will eat you alive with that mm-hmm.
0: the whole game. It didn't concern me, their drive for the touchdown. It's kind of what Georgia does. You know, we don't shut out many opponents. And Alabama shuts out UL Monroe this week. Big deal. We let Southern score a couple times. Big deal. The thing that really impressed me was the fact that in the third quarter, we come out and score four touchdowns. And obviously, the coaches at halftime for Southern were saying, hey, guys, we're in this game. And then Georgia just does what they should do, a seventh-ranked team in the country, and shuts the door very quickly in the third quarter.
1: Yeah, it felt to me the only other real takeaway from the game uh, was the very scary moment involving Southern's wide receiver Devin Gales. I think it's Devin. I didn't hear his name pronounced. Maybe uh, Devin or Devon. Uh, He apparently had surgery or is having surgery tomorrow morning from a spinal injury. Apparently he is in good spirits. They say he's moving his arms. He was able to scratch his head. Uh, Obviously an incredibly scary moment when that happened. Uh, My wife informed me that my son, who was watching this game, was texting the Southern player to see if, if he was okay, which really kind of broke my heart a little bit. You know, whenever there's one of those moments, I've been to a game before where there's a moment like that happening, and it is, I always find the silence that kind of takes over a stadium like that uh, particularly eerie. Tony, were you able to get a sense of, uh, uh, was it like that when, when that play happened?
2: Well, it was, it was actually a fairly normal play. It was on the other end from where I sit, and, you know, I saw him go down, and it looked like, and it turned out to be true, it looked like he had a, a collision was going to block Mark from Morgan, actually. Mm-hmm. And he, based on the replay, I saw him, he just put his head, he crowned the head yeah. down, and it it called something, I and mean, it was very clear he was hurt yeah. and badly from the second he went down. And the George sideline knew it, too, because their trainers got out there about the same time Southern trainers did. Uh, it was very clear from the way... Georgia's trainers and Georgia's training staff was uh, acting uh, that, that it, they knew it was a serious injury. I mean, it was very clear from the urgency they were showing. You know, uh, our Baltimore and prayers go out to his family and everything, but also like the way you read some quotes about you know Georgia's basically treating this as their injury, to their own. it's a long way from here to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the fact that he's going to be he's probably looking at a fairly significant stay in Athens. As it is, and the fact that, that Georgia has stepped up and treating him as if they would have won their own athletes, got hurt. I think it just speaks a lot about Georgia. It's not that other schools wouldn't do this, but it's a chance for us to it's a chance for, for us to really recognize how good we have it in Athens. And but you're you're right, Will. It was a very scary moment. I mean, it got it got definitely quiet. And there were still a lot of people there because it was. I'm was surprised at how well the crowd stuck around. You know, both teams pretty quickly recognized it what, to what it was and behaved accordingly.
0: Yeah, and I have a little bit of experience with neck injuries. I've never had one, but in the industry that I've been in, in the medical industry, I can say with certainty that the medical staff here, the neurosurgeons or the orthopedic spine surgeons here in Athens are some of the very best, not only in the area, but I would say in the whole state or the Southeast. So I'm sure Devin Gales and his family are going to be well taken care of with whomever is treating him. Uh, and so, yeah, prayers go out to him and prayers also go out to coach Odom's. I've sent him an email. I don't know. I just, I was kind of drawn to, to doing that just a, a couple of quick lines to him. You know, I don't really expect a response, but I do think that that's just something that would be nice for the Georgia people around here to, to let the Southern community know that we're behind them in this.
1: All right. So, The Southern game, obviously, really not too much that you can say uh, other than this, uh, about a 48-6 game, uh, which is probably good because a lot of other stuff happened in the SEC, to say the least, this week. Here's my question to the group that may lead us into a discussion of what happened this weekend in the SEC, specifically the SEC East. Is Florida the top challenger to Georgia in the SEC East?
0: Well, it looks like that way now, doesn't it? I mean, I thought, well, we we all thought that Tennessee was just going to be loaded for bear. And that, you know what? They might be. Uh, I just don't know how well coached they are. It's not necessarily a shot at Butch Jones, but he just, I think his record against ranked teams is like one in 10. If I'm not mistaken, when we played them two years ago, the Pig Howard fumble game, it was tabbed as tennessee's breakout game and they're still looking for it so to answer your question will i guess it is florida because tennessee dropped the ball missouri looked pretty awful for the second week in a row and lost to kentucky and since i said kentucky might kentucky be the the next challenge in the east for georgia
2: well i think kentucky is certainly one of them and georgia kentucky and florida all have two uh, SEC wins, uh, although uh, Florida has a, a one, has a head-to-head already over Kentucky, two, Kentucky 2-1. Two you know, it's, it's hard to get your head around Florida when you watch their offense play. and I, I, ugh, I hate to say that because, it's because we still have to play them, but, you know, it, it sure seems that way. Uh, I don't think there's any team in the east right now. Other than Georgia, it looks like they really control their own destiny, although you can say that about Florida, but I think Florida probably has to be the next team up, if only for no other reason other than they have the head-to-head over Kentucky. So, you know, once again, Vanderbilt had a, another almost moral victory yesterday. <laughs> Missouri's offense looks like Missouri's offense, and uh, so that kind of leaves us with Kentucky uh, and Florida and then Tennessee, who only has one loss, and they still have the opportunity because they still face us up there of making
1: our season miserable. I'd have to think, though, considering, I mean, that's a tough loss for Tennessee this weekend, for, for a team that's supposedly on the upward swing. Everyone keeps saying they're just one of those, they just need to pick off one of those wins uh, to really get them over the hump. But now, you know, if they're losing, if they still can't beat Florida, with Florida you know, kind of rebuilding, putting this thing together, and Tennessee a season there with all these guys coming back, I can't imagine a lot of Tennessee fans. Like, if if all of a sudden that Georgia game feels like their whole season, i got to say, if I'm Tennessee, I'm I'm a Tennessee fan, I'm pretty concerned. And if I'm a Georgia fan, I mean, the two teams everyone's been telling us all summer were the biggest challengers, Missouri and Tennessee. They both lost games that, frankly, they probably shouldn't have.
2: Yeah, and the thing about Tennessee is that it'll be really interesting to see what happens. They have Arkansas this week, and Arkansas has their own continuing issues, which I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to make fun of later. But <laughs> I think what Tennessee faces is they, uh, they, you know, the Oklahoma game was like, yeah, you know, that's, wow, wow it's so close. We're almost, almost there. Oklahoma, yeah, top team, one of the top teams in the Big 12. But, you know, Florida, who everybody generally assumes is still two years away talent-wise on offense could be a threat to do anything other than just make noise, and they had, them, they had them down two scores and, and lost, just straight-up lost. Yeah. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to get your head around from a psychology standpoint. It's not the Tennessee can't. But, boy, would the wheels fall off if they lose to Arkansas next week. I mean, they just fall off. I don't see how they don't.
1: Speaking of the wheels falling off, how about Auburn?
0: Yay! What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't feel bad about that. I really don't. Well, I mean,
2: it's clear that Gus Malzahn, uh, you know, he made the deal he made to to get all that luck in 2013. Boy, they look like a hot mess. Sean White looked like Stan White and still did not look as good as Jeremy Johnson's, which tells you uh, an awful lot about the state of their offense right now. I mean, you know, Auburn is like, it's like watching Oregon's offense, except for they don't have any options. To make the offense work at all, at least Oregon has some options, and it's
0: it's bad. I mean, it's bad. I think that uh, Texas, Tennessee, Virginia, and Auburn should play in a four-team round robin for the most disappointed fan base in America right now. We saw what happened to Texas for the second week in a row, and then Virginia playing quite possibly the toughest September schedule that we've seen in quite some time, and then doing a face plant. I think I was texting with Tony on Friday night when Virginia was playing, and we were like, this is the guy that Grayson Lambert lost out to. Their quarterback, Johns, is just kind of amazing how ineffective they are on offense.
2: And bringing that up, as a Virginia fan, when you see what Lambert's doing here, you have to ever, Virginia's AD, you really have to be questioning your life decisions about your football coach. <laughs> I mean, you just have to be. There's
1: no question. No question. It's really shocking. It really is. Particularly because, you know, the big thing with Lambert, too, is that, like, okay, they didn't quite know how to use him, but, you know, he's a good fit in Georgia's system. and It works out a little better. Forget that. This guy can throw deep. <laughs> this guy can throw deep and is accurate. Yeah, you, you have to be pretty concerned. Yeah. So, yeah, that, 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 and that's straight up on your coaching staff. Yeah. On your
2: ability to develop a quarterback, your ability to select talent that fix your system, and the
1: ability to coach them up. I mean, it is hard enough to find a quarterback, let alone not screwing him up when you get one. But let's not get too cocky, okay? Two no. weeks ago, two no. weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was uh, hammering Lambert. So yeah, he said two good weeks. And so everyone, we're going This is a short podcast this weekend. There's a very good reason for that because we, like you, listeners, need to get some rest <laughs> because we have. Uh, a big week ahead of us. No, no game day. I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Uh, them doing, them doing uh, Notre Dame Clemson. I understand it. Do you think game day's here? If Alabama would have beat Mississippi,
0: not yeah. if we're on CBS. Because why would they promote a CBS broadcast? Now, I, I say let them go to Clemson. I mean, I think most Georgia fans would say, you know what, let's just let's just handle this internally <laughs> and not have the game day show. I'd rather it be maybe down the road. Well, I guess we wouldn't have another opportunity because we're not going to have any other big high-profile games of teams coming in undefeated. So we'll wait for them to, to come next year.
2: Yeah, They've shown a, a, an ability to do that. But with the you know with the ABC national game, Clemson 3-0, Notre Dame 4-0, I don't think that was a hard decision for them. Even if Alabama wins against Ole Miss, I don't think they can. SEC Nation had already said they were coming here and – Although, I did like Scott's suggestion that you do a joint one. he maybe set up in Royston or Liv- uh, Livonia or somewhere like that and you know, go in between and let, let the Clemson and the Georgia fans get crazy. But
0: Yeah, yeah, think about that, Tony. You name four historic teams that have been good since forever that yeah, are going to be playing, playing within yeah, 83, 83 miles of each other yeah. on the same weekend.
2: Yeah, wouldn't surprise me at least if some wacky football junkie is not going to do the double dip get out of the Georgia game at 6.30 and try to beat the traffic up to Clemson and get there in time for the 8 o'clock kickoff
1: and probably make it happen. It's going to be quite a week. I've been hearing about... So last time was, what, 2008? Let's not get into the game. I uh, was not going to preview the game, but everybody get some rest because it's been a long time coming and we've got quite a long show to do uh, to preview it. So uh, unless there's anything else you guys want to add from the Southern game, anything uh, last toss-outs or do, is it time to finally start to concentrate on Alabama?
0: I think one thing I'll throw out is that I saw that Mark Schleybaugh and Brett McMurphy put in their college bowl projections, and they both have UGA slated to play Clemson in the Chick-fil-A Beach Bowl, for what it's worth.
2: That means neither of them still believe we can uh, win the SEC. <laughs> right, they've or, got old or Miss. Be, or actually be good enough to, to flip into one of the ball, uh, the college football Playoff bowl, six bowl
1: pack, or whatever they call it. Now. Well, more proof once again that no one is going to believe that Georgia's not going to drop a game they shouldn't until they actually don't drop a game that they shouldn't. So, okay. but
2: yeah, I'm, I'm fine with that. They are yep. some people chirping about polls. The only one that matters to me is we're in the top four on December the seventh. That's really that's really the truth.
1: And you win the, uh, if Georgia wins this week. We're looking to be well on pace for that. So. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week. The week that we've been waiting for since the schedule came out, since, we, since they, we, they all announced that they, Alabama was going to be in Athens in 2015, that week is upon us. So everyone rest, everyone be ready, and we'll get it back going uh, this week. It's the Alabama week. You guys ready? Amen.
0: Go dog. Go dogs. Be safe out there. And that'll do it for episode 12. Tune into our show on Thursday as we preview arguably the biggest game at Sanford Stadium in eight years, which was the last time Alabama showed up. And because I tend to be a little bit superstitious, and because she's earned it, our favorite New York-based Georgia alumni and fan, UGA Carey, maintains her overall number one ranking in our WSLS Pick'em Contest through week four. Congrats to you, Carey. You can hear our podcast on SoundCloud, the Georgia Sports Blog, and iTunes. Should iTunes be your preferred way of listening? If you could take the time to rate, review, and subscribe, that would be awesome. If you'd like to send us a tweet, our handle on Twitter is at WSLSpodcast. And like Will said, get some rest in the early parts of this week. Listen to our Alabama preview on Thursday, and get ready as Nick Saban and his Crimson Tide roll into Sanford on Saturday. Have a great week, and we will most definitely see you on campus.